Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would be here as our teacher, that you'd help us understand what is right and what is true. And I ask in the name of Jesus, amen. When I was 18 years old, I was on a field trip and I met a man who gave me a Bible study. I'd like to share it with you a little bit, just part of it. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Did I say Acts? I met Psalm. I was thinking ahead of myself. Psalm 2. Acts is where the passage is that helps with the problem I'm about to present to you. Psalm 2. And we're looking at verse 7. It says, I will declare the decree... The Lord hath said unto me, You are my son, this day have I begotten thee. This passage is the Father speaking to the Son. That's what the New Testament teaches in the book of Hebrews. Do you see when you read this passage that it does not match very well things that you've been taught all your life? Was there a day when the Father said to the Son, This day have I begotten thee? How far back in eternity was that? Look in your Bibles at Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. And we're looking at verse 25. Verse 23 and 25. We're in Proverbs 8, 23. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth, while as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. This is Jesus under the figure of wisdom. That word brought forth, the Hebrew word is cool. It's the same one used elsewhere in the book of Job for the hinds calving on the mountains. That is, it's for giving birth. That study that I, that I heard when I was 18, the man began to share with me that there was the father and there was the son, but there was someone who wanted to be with that group. These two were one, but there was someone who wanted to join it so that there would be Three. And he began to share with me a Bible study on the doctrine of the Trinity that indicated that the doctrine is as pagan as pagan can be. How many of you have heard a study on this topic at some point in your life? So it's like maybe eight or nine of you, mostly males, that raised their, at least that raised their hands. Maybe the ladies were shy to raise their hands or something. Um, what we're talking about during this period is how 
when you receive a study on something that purports to be new truth, how can you know whether it is truth or not? I think the way a lot of people have gone at it is they've assumed if it's strange, it's not true. And that particular method approximates a good one. I mean that they end up avoiding every strange idea. But you see that that can't be the right method just to avoid it because it seems wrong. Because if that was a good method, wouldn't that keep everyone outside of the Adventist church too? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it? There has to be some more, how many of you follow what I'm trying to communicate? There has to be some more fundamentally useful method than just avoiding the strange things. But the other method that you've watched people follow is when you receive that strange study, you begin to go through it carefully, reading every quote, every verse, and the more you read, the more it looks like it must be true. And before you know it, you're convinced that this thing is true. Welcome. So I've written a paper on the shepherd's rod. And in the, in, on the, in the introduction to that paper, I bring out that if I believed every study that I have personally received that had these qualifications, the author was very knowledgeable, the author advocated helpful reforms, the author used a great volume of scripture and spirit of prophecy and helped explain passages that otherwise did not make much sense. And I could go on with a list of good things about these studies. If I believed every study I've received that met these qualifications, I would belong to eight different fighting groups at one time. Does that make any sense to what I'm communicating? That we're going to have to have some hermeneutic that will go deeper, more thorough than just figuring that if good people are teaching good things with lots of evidence, they must be right. So I set you up, and I never fixed anything. I started, so let's fix that. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13. We want to address the question, when was Jesus begotten? It doesn't really fit in our topic, except for that any time you introduce a doubt and you don't settle it, it's your fault if people become doubtful, right? So I just want to settle it. Acts 13 and verse 33. God has fulfilled the same unto us their children, and that he has raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the, what's it say? Second Psalm. Psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. What day was Jesus begotten? It was at his resurrection. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus one time called the first begotten of the dead. Look at Romans 1. I just want this idea to make some more sense to you so you can understand why it would say something like this. Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, and we're looking at verse 3. If we add the word gospel to the beginning of verse 3, you'll have enough context to read it. The gospel concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, 
which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So if the question is, in what way is Jesus the son of David? The answer is genetically. Do you see that in the verse 3? Then look at verse 4. And declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. How? By his resurrection. By the resurrection from the dead. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 8? He said, I know that you are the children of Abraham genetically. I'm speaking in my own words, the thoughts that I find there. But if you were really the children of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham. Then he said, you're the children of the devil. Now, does the devil have any genetic children? He doesn't. He never has had genetic children. Jesus was showing that sonship in the Bible is a reference to similarity in character. In fact, did you ever think this through, that there were sons in the Bible before there were births? That before women were created for the ability to have children, that the sons of God shouted for joy? You can find that in the book of Job. In other words, before Genesis, before the story of Genesis, sonship in this universe was a reference to similarity in character. So what was it that showed that Jesus was similar to the Father? He said, I have power to lay down my life and power to take it up again. It was the resurrection that showed the relation of Jesus to the Father, his divinity. And so that's when the Father said, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. What about that word cool that's used to mean born? The first time that's used in Scripture is Genesis 8.10, where it says that Noah stayed other days in the ark. One of the meanings of the word is to give birth. Another one is to wait. Which one makes more sense in light of what we know about Jesus? Do you remember the very first verse we read in Proverbs 8 said, I was set up from everlasting? Jesus said that he, with the Father, that they were together waiting as one brought up with him, that is, of a similar age, for the creation of this planet. The truth is that that teaching that I received at age 18 was a heresy, but it was a persuasive heresy. It was a documented heresy full of information and quotes, and I just want you to somehow in this period become immune to that kind of thing. So now, how to get started. Um, if you have that handout, look down at point four. Point four, do you see their methods? I want to talk about methods about how to study the Bible. And um, you've, some of you, most of you missed the last hour where I talked about some other principles of Bible study. But do you see 4A, reread stories for new meaning? Stories stick with you much better than any other modality of information. But if you're a good teacher, you'll never use words like modality. <laughs> so let me try that another way. If I tell you a story, you'll remember it very easily. If I tell you a bunch of facts, it'll be a great difficulty for you to keep them in your mind. So the Bible, what's it do? It teaches through and we've made a mistake in, keep, in relegating our stories to children. 
If you'll go back now as an adult and read the stories, you'll find so much there for you. Rereading stories is an incredible way for you to be taught by God. Look at 4B. Study passages rather than verses. I think this is, you've heard enough on this that I can safely mention it and go on without risking anything. Passages, that is, the idea of paragraphs or partial chapters or chapters, looking for how they fit together will give you a better understanding of some part in the middle of them. Look at C. Pray interactively as you study. Ask God what a phrase means. Ask for help. Repent of evil thoughts. So here comes me. Was that English? I don't know. But anyway, so I, I was age 18, and I received the study on the Godhead. And if the study is true, what the man is saying, then maybe I need to leave the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Because the church voted its official belief in a triune God in the 1980s. Like we had never done that really before. And um, do you see, for an 18-year-old, this is a pretty weighty thing to have to evaluate. And I'm having to consider, and it looks so biblical. So what would be a really rational thing for me to do in that kind of situation? While I'm studying, I ought to be praying at the same time I'm studying. Does that make sense to you? That I want, I want to admit by my opening of the Bible, by my prayer, that if I don't have God's help, I'm not going to come to the right answer this way. So what's left on this board from earlier, in, from the first hour, is that if we want to be taught of God, we're going to have to be weaned from human dependence, and we're going to have to compare Scripture with Scripture. Can you see from what I already showed you that if I tried to understand Psalm 2 from Psalm 2 alone, it might never have got me the answer I needed? That really, but a simple comparison with Acts 13, didn't that just make it so simple? Didn't it just settle it just like that? But you know, if I hadn't gone after this for myself, I'll tell you that study that I was given about Psalm 2 and the Godhead did not include Acts 13.33. Is that any surprise to you? If I had been dependent on that man, I guess I'm talking to you about an anti-hermeneutic. There's another one of those don't use it words. I'm talking about a false principle of understanding of, of Scripture. Do you think that you have studied something for yourself when you take someone else's study and you go through it and read every part of it and look up the verses to see if they really say that? Do you know, even though you look up the references yourself, you haven't studied for yourself. You're not the one who looked up the information or organized it or put it together. And the devil may have very well helped the person who wrote the study to do that very thing. Until you go digging for yourself, you are not meeting the first condition of Isaiah chapter 28, of being weaned from human dependence. So as soon as I began to study for myself, it didn't take long to find Acts 13.33. I think it was probably in the marginal reading by Psalm 2. I mean, it's just kind of like that, right? And like it's, I can see. Well, what about that Hebrew word? Cool. The point is, I think that putting that study to rest as falsehood 
only took a few hours of earnest study for myself of prayerful consideration. But if I had missed the method and instead I had gone through reading more and more material on the topic, put together people who believe this new thing, I might have spent 100 or 200 hours and become a thoroughly confounded person. Does that make any sense to you what I'm trying to communicate? Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13. And I don't know the verse numbers, so while you're turning there, I'm going to have my computer help me. I just read it here and then I don't have to look it up. Hebrews 13 9, it says, Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. I'll tell you, I had a hard time looking this verse up because I typed in the word diverse, and it turns out the word diverse is spelled two different ways, and I typed the other one and it didn't come up, and I felt really nervous. But be not carried, but then I looked up the word strange and it showed up, and I was much happier. <laughs> Do not be carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. Do you see that to obey Hebrews 13.9, you have to be able to identify which doctrines are diverse and strange? There's no way you can obey this verse without having some sort of criteria for knowing what doctrines are odd and, yeah, such. How many of you can follow that thought? I think that's a, a really important one. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace not with meats, which have not profited them, which have been occupied therein. Do you see when you look at that passage that the truths that God has given ought to do something for you? That they ought to spiritually help you? There are doctrines that don't spiritually help people. I'm searching for a way to communicate this that won't sound either like a duh or like a what. <laughs> Keep a finger here in Hebrews 13, but look at Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy chapter 29. And looking at verse 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children. Listen carefully, forever, that we may, what's it say? Do. Do, Do you see in Deuteronomy 29, not only are there certain things that are for us and certain things that aren't for us, but the things that are for us are practical. What are they for? So we can obey God. The value of the truths that are revealed is that they help us obey. And the things that don't help us obey, many of those are not revealed. So I'll tell you, for example, on the topic of the Godhead, there are a lot of things that God has told us about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. 
I need to know that I need to have the Spirit living inside of me. I need to know that Jesus died for my sins, that the Father himself loves me. But if I begin asking those kind of questions like about what kind of substance or how similar are they or about their relation or about the nature of the Spirit, I can begin asking questions that have no practical bearing on my spiritual life. Is it a good thing to be carried about with diverse and strange doctrines? It's not. Not those kind of doctrines that have not profited those that have been exercised therein. If you want to read something kind of sad and silly, and maybe edifying too, read A.T. Jones' book, The Two Republics, the section about the Christological controversies of the first, second, and third centuries. Has anyone here ever read any part of that? Not a soul. So I'll just tell you some of what you'll find. The book is called The Two Republics. It's the biggest book he ever wrote. And this section is on the Christological controversies, that is, the arguments about Jesus that happened during the first and second and third centuries. I should say second and third and fourth centuries. It didn't happen between A.D. 0 and A.D. 100. It's a, it's a series of chapters. Um, he's really, the book is about Rome and America, and this is part of his history of the Rome part. And so he just goes through, I don't know the names of the chapters, but there's several in a row. Do you know where you can find this book the cheapest now? It's the new Ellen White CD-ROM. You know, you buy it for like $25, and you get this on there. It used to cost you 50 just for this one book. So you have to, but I'm going to tell you what you're going to find, because I don't think many of you are probably not going to look this up. <laughs> you're going to find that the Christians in the first centuries argued to the point of blows until, until they were mocked by the heathen about things that no one in the whole universe, well, excuse me, no one on earth ever has understood. They were arguing about the nature, like the substance of the Father and the Son and how similar or dissimilar they were. They didn't get Hebrews 13. It's not good to be carried about with the verse and which have not profited those that are carried. I just should jump to my conclusion. The Godhead argument is more tricky than you think. You can be right and still be wrong. If you spend your life studying it to prove the right position, you may be ignoring Hebrews 13 almost as much as the person who spends his life studying it to prove the wrong position. We don't want to be carried about with God's doctrine. As, did I say God's doctrine? I met with the diverse and strange doctrine. I was thinking ahead on, on point four. I'll show you what I was thinking of so you can learn how I could do such a silly thing. Look down at point five. Do you see where it says choose what to study? Do your homework in your father's homeschool. Can you tell I wrote this for 12-year-olds? All right, okay. Anyway, um, so there it is. Do your homework. That is, has God given us, a, a, has he given us truth that's more relevant to our time than other truths? This is one of the mistakes that was made by Victor Hutef. 
And just so I know how far to go with this, how many of you have any idea who Victor Hutef was? How many of you know anyone who's ever studied the shepherd's rod? It's the same people that raised their hand for Victor Hutef. Okay, so that makes sense. So he was the one who started the shepherd's rod in the 1930s. Victor reasoned away. See what you think about this reasoning. He reasoned that if, if the Bible was written by, for men, then it must be God intended for men to understand it. Would you go with him that far? Yes. And that it had to be understood before close of probation because then it wouldn't be any value to understand it. Would you go with him that far? Mm-hmm. And therefore, there are a lot of things in the Minor Prophets that no one had ever explained in Adventist history that he figured if the world's going to end, someone had better come to understand them. And would you follow him that far? Mm-hmm. There's a little more hesitation going there. I really think Victor didn't understand this fifth point. God never asked his church to focus on 800 things. As humans, we're not capable of focusing on 800 things. So he's given us a present truth. Really, if you will master the judgment and the atonement, if you will if you will understand the mark of the beast and the seal of God, the Laodicean message, and how righteousness by faith fits into that whole picture, don't, isn't that enough to keep you busy f- until now, until the day you die? Isn't that? And if God had tr- wanted us to try to focus on everything, he would have lost all of us. So Victor's mistake was thinking that the church would have to teach about everything in the Bible. And of course, when he began studying these obscure points, no one could prove him wrong because no one else had any clue what it was talking about. And unfortunately, there were some people who reasoned like this. They didn't tell me this. I just, it seems like they must have. I'm just gathering this from observing the picture. They must have reasoned that if no one can prove him wrong, he must be right. So let me put that hermeneutic to rest. The fact that no one can prove someone wrong might be evidence that he's right, but not likely, because the devil has always proved truth to be wrong. He can always find someone who will say he can prove that wrong. More likely, it's because he's teaching about something so obscure that no one else feels like they understand it. And God never has made his tests obscure. Aren't you glad the final test is over Sabbath and Sunday? You know, does, does that make sense? In other words, something that, that, that we can understand, something that we can grasp. If it wasn't easy, it might test something other than consecration. It might test intelligence. And wouldn't that be a bad line for dividing sheep from goats? All right. So I, I'm trying to figure out how to best inoculate you against some of these false ideas, right? So as I'm thinking, so here's one of the points is to focus on God's homework. What you want to do is study the three angels' messages. You want to study the judgment. You want to study what it means to glorify God and to fear him. If you'll study the truth for this time, it will inoculate you to so many of the heresies for this time. 
because the devil knows what we're supposed to focus on, and he puts his barbs out to keep us from that very thing. I did a worship series at Washtenaw Hills College a few weeks ago on the three angels' messages. Ellen White indicates that those who focus and teach those messages will, to a large degree, be protected from the errors that are blowing through the church. It just makes good sense to me. You do your homework and you'll pass the test. So another study that has come my way quite a number of times now is the one by A.F. Ballinger. Uh, I don't know why I want to keep asking this question. It's just I'm a curious, but how many of you have heard about Ballinger? It's a different class than I've heard about Hutef, but it's a much smaller one. The editor of the review in Herald, no, it was an associate editor of the Review and Herald about 12 years ago. He's still an associate editor of the Review and Herald. He wrote his opinion column that no one in the Adventist church had ever successfully rebutted the teachings of this apostate Ballinger. He wasn't saying that Ballinger was right. He was just saying that Ballinger wrote arguments that no one has really successfully defeated, and, and he was suggesting that we ought to defeat these arguments. Yes? I was just getting to this. I was, but thank you for asking. Really, people will pay more attention because you asked. Um, Ballinger, you could summarize his arguments very well in, in three points. He was attacking the doctrine of the 1844 investigative judgment. This, this is what he didn't believe in. He said, it can't be true. Because in the Old Testament, there was forgiveness. So Jesus must have been ministering in the heavenly sanctuary in the Old Testament. So the holy place ministry of Christ must have been an Old Testament experience. And he had quite a few verses that proved that there was forgiveness in the Old Testament. Don't we use those verses in the Old Testament? Mm -hmm. the, the God says he's going to forgive us. So, do you understand his argument? That there's forgiveness, there has to be ministry? His second argument was like this, that after the ascension, Jesus went to the right hand of the throne of God. And that is most holy place. And you can find testimony after testimony in the New Testament that Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God. When Stephen was stoned, he looked up and what did he see? At the most holy place. Ballinger's third argument is a little more involved, but it's not a complex one. When you look in Hebrews, it says that Jesus entered within the veil. Now, Adventists say, oh yes, that is within the veil that gets you into the holy place, because you know you have a veil there. But Ballinger went to the Old Testament, and you can do this yourself and do a word study within the veil and without the veil, and found that, that those phrases, within and without the veil, show up 20 times in the Old Testament. Within the veil always means most holy place. Without the veil never means courtyard. It always means holy place. So Ballinger put one plus one plus one together and got three and concluded that the Adventist church was wrong on this point. 
wanting to be as charitable as he could, he concluded that Ellen White was not in every respect inspired um, because obviously her conclusions didn't match his Bible study, right? You follow what he's saying, as charitable as he could be. And, but the Adventist denomination concluded that Ballinger was apostate and they opposed his views. I'm so glad he lived a long time ago or he might be teaching right now somewhere. Um, I mean that, what I just said. I know some people teaching that don't believe one bit better than Ballinger. But in his day, that you couldn't teach that and still be a, a teacher in, in our system. And he ended up leaving the Adventist faith and opposing us. So today, you're likely to meet those same arguments. At some point in your life, you're going to meet them. Would you like to know how to answer them? But that would just... I, like, it wouldn't be fair if I brought them up and just told you to <laughs> hope it works out for you, would it? Okay, that wouldn't be... Okay. All right, so, so let, me, let me just answer those three. First of all, about forgiveness in the Old Testament. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Let's address this question about forgiveness in the Old Testament. Yes. Why is it that um, that would dispute any doctrine on the sanctuary? I mean, to know that there was forgiveness in the um, before okay. Christ's death seems common knowledge, right? Yeah, so what Ballinger was saying is that to have forgiveness, you have to have Christ ministering in the sanctuary. And if Christ is ministering there in the Old Testament, then the Adventist position that he began his ministry after the cross is faulty. You, maybe it would make more sense if you understood Ballinger's view. Ballinger's view is that the holy place is mostly a place, the division is the cross. That in the Old Testament, Christ is in the holy place, in the New Testament, he's in the most holy place. Does that make any sense to you? I'm So what then is the Adventist position that that opposes? So the Adventist position is that in the that Jesus went into the holy place at his ascension, and in 1844 he went into the most holy place. Um, so as a timeline, the contrast would be if we have Old Testament, the cross, in 1844. Adventists say that here is the holy place and here is the most holy place ministry. Ballinger says here is the holy place and here is the most holy place ministry. That. Did that more answer the question? All right, so are you still in Romans 3? Romans 3, and let's look... At uh, verse 25, this is one of the most awkwardly translated passages in all of Scripture, but I think I can help you understand its import. Whom, that is Jesus, Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. For those of you who love sanctuary things, you should just know that the word propitiation there is a form of the Greek word for mercy. It's the same form that's used for the mercy seat by the Jews. So some will even have the word mercy seat in your marginal reading there. Jesus has been set forth to be, as it were, a mercy seat. 
through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. I don't know. Does anyone have any other version of to read from verse 25 that you could read loudly? What do you read? This is King James. I have the English Standard Version. Could you says, go ahead? Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness <clears throat> because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. That's a much better translation. Could you read the last part of that verse again loudly? The last sentence? Mm-hmm. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. In other words, in the Old Testament, when God was forgiving sins, it was entirely provisional. And the justice of God in forgiving those sins was never manifest until the cross. The cross is what made it apparent that what God did in the Old Testament was just. So what was Old Testament forgiveness? It was provisional on a future application of the cross of Jesus. Do you see how this answers the objection? In a sense, you can say that Jesus' blood was available to Adam and to Abel, but it did not make his death superfluous. In a sense, you can say that Christ's ministration was available to Adam and to Abel, but it did not make his ministration meaningless that there is time and place for everything, and God overlooked the sins of the Old Testament until a time came that they could be dealt with appropriately. Yeah, and that's exactly the thought. Like a post-dated check. Yeah. You have the check, but they say, don't cash it in this until such and such a time. That's you it. You get your product and you're turning in your post-dated check. Yes, sir. I'm, I'm just curious. What does Christ's ministry in the most holy place have to do with what you're ever saying? So, so this, <laughs> no, this is very important. Can I answer his second and third objection and then come back to this? Otherwise, I think it will be... So that's the first objection. The second one I told you about was Christ at the right hand of the throne of God. Turn through your Bibles to Daniel 7. Daniel 7, and we're looking at verse, oh, verse 9. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, and listen carefully about his throne, and his what? Wheels, Wheels of burning fire. If I'm going to ask you, what do you know about God's throne from this verse, besides it being fiery, what else might you know? Wheels. You know, it moves. <laughs> Does that make sense to you what I'm saying? So the second argument of Ballinger is just meaningless. I mean, yes, Jesus... Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God, but the throne of God moves. But there's more than that. You know, when Jesus comes back in the clouds of glory, he said, you'll see the Son of God at the right hand of 
tower. This is when he's here in the clouds. That's not most holy place. In fact, that's just a short distance from most wicked place. <laughs> do, do, do you understand what I'm saying? And so, so really, the argument isn't valid at all. What about that third argument about the... And for this, I, I recommend reading an article at the same website called Ballinger Defeated, just something so you can find it easily, right? Okay, all right. Um, in, the, in the Old Testament, when you had your holy place and most holy place, you had two curtains. In the Old Testament, they're both called hangings. This one is called a door, and this one is called a, the word there is veil, but the word means like a, like a hiding. That's not a real good word, but it's the kind of veil, the idea of veil you'd have if you were covering your face. Maybe a covering is the best word for it, better at least than hiding. In the sanctuary, there was only one covering and there was only one door, but there were two hangings. When Ballinger was doing his word study, he didn't do it on purpose, but what he was looking at was within the covering and without the covering. And within the covering and without the covering is always going to be holy place and most holy place. But in the book of Hebrews, it talks about a first veil and a second veil. Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 9. It doesn't say first veil. It says the veil, and then it says the second veil. When, it, when you find the phrase second veil, it tells you it can't be referring to the doors or to the coverings. It must be referring to the hangings. There were, if it's two, I think you follow what I'm trying to communicate. The Greek word here is something like this. Katapatasma. I think if that's not it, it's, you know, I'm not too good at spelling in English, so you have to forgive me in Greek. But it means something like down flowing. It's, it's the idea of a curtain. That's what it is. The first curtain and the second curtain. And um, so what's the point? Ballinger did his word study. Good for him. He, he didn't understand the Hebrew and the Greek, so he didn't get his word study quite right. Was he doomed? There was something that could have saved Ballinger from the confusion that he fell into. Look at Ephesians 4. I haven't forgotten your question. I mean, I did forget it, but I just remembered it, right? So after, so after Ephesians 4, we'll come to it. Ephesians 4, and look at verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastor-teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith 
and to save time, verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of man and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. The gifts of the Spirit were given to save us from our own befooleries. You know, Ballinger received the most interesting testimony from Ellen White. She told him that he had put together a great many scriptures, but that his interpretation of the scriptures was wrong. She did not explain in any sense in which case he was wrong, just that he was wrong. She didn't understand how he was wrong. I mean, I don't think she understood any of the Greek or Hebrew or anything that we're talking about there. But why did God give us the gifts of the Spirit? You know, it was to help us with these kind of things. And if he had accepted what his brethren had to share, if he had started, instead of beginning with his objection, if he'd begun with Daniel 2, 7, 8, 9, he could have arrived at the Adventist position thoroughly and known that his own view must be wrong in view of how true the opposite view was. But when he only asked the question, is my view right or wrong, he couldn't see enough evidence to indicate that it was wrong, and then he risked everything on the fact that it was right. And that just wasn't a good gamble. Let me come to this brother first. So, the relation of the investigative judgment to overcoming sin, is that what you're asking about? Okay, so it's the same thing. That is the investigative judgment. So, what Jesus is doing in the most holy place is what the Bible calls a special work of cleansing. We call it the Day of Atonement. But Day of Atonement in this sentence means a day of cleansing. For example, when you study about things that need an atonement in the Old Testament, you'll find that a leprous, a leper needs atonement. You'll find that a someone who has an issue of blood needs an atonement. You'll find a fungal-infested house needs an atonement. Um, That is, things that are dirty need a cleansing. So before Christ comes back, the Hebrew sanctuary showed that there would be a special time of cleaning up the church, a special time of cleansing the people. That's also there in Daniel 12, where it says, Many shall be purified and made white. This is what Christ's work in the most holy place is all about. It's that Malachi 3 work. It says he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. When you know that what Jesus is doing is cleaning up the church, then you understand your job to cooperate in that work of cleaning up the church. We, of course, we're not saying that Martin Luther couldn't have victory over sin. So we can't make something like this. We can't say that this doctrine is essential to overcoming, or else we say overcoming wasn't possible until 1844. Does that make sense to you what I'm saying? But the idea of a final cleansing is a highly biblical idea. And what it says in 1 John is every man that has this hope in him purifies himself. So 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. It never will happen that we can have that victorious, clean experience while we refuse to walk in the light that God is giving us. So maybe there are three different answers that are all brief. One of them is that there's a work of purification that we understand because of the sanctuary. One is that walking in the light is how we have fellowship with God. 
It's the condition of being cleaned up. But there is a third answer. If you don't believe the truth on this topic, it automatically causes you to not believe the truth in relation to the spirit of prophecy. That is, if you don't buy into the truth about the sanctuary, you cannot acknowledge Ellen White as being a true prophet. Does that make sense to you how you can't? You can't. And if you don't acknowledge that, then you cut yourself off from one of the gifts that God has given in Ephesians 4 to save us from these kind of errors. So suddenly you become vulnerable. And I can just think Adventist history is littered with wrecks that prove what that leads to. I'm thinking Brinsmead right now, for example. Just, and have any of you, I mean, if you just check into what's become of, of the man. Brinsmead, he's a, a notable apostate from your parents' age. Probably not. Okay. Probably not. Okay. I am supposed to be done now, but I'm willing to. But who? <laughs> but he's, is he gone? Or is there, there was some. Oh, was, uh, yeah. It's kind of irrelevant now. I was just thinking, Bollinger, so he believes that Christ has to be ministering in a sanctuary for you to have forgiveness? What happens when he came to earth? <clears throat> like, uh, I, that's, a very, that's a very valid argument, and I, I don't think he ever addressed it. I just. So he thought he had to be in the sanctuary for forgiveness? Mm -hmm. oh, okay. Go ahead, sister. Reason being is that um, if saying that every um, every doctrine that sounds strange, right? Yes. For us to dispel them because it sounds strange is uh, is is not a very good way to go about, you know, singling out what's right from what's wrong. Mm -hmm. But then to say that we are right, and then if something else sounds kind of strange. We're just going to say that we are right. It sounds like begging the question. It Is that what you're saying? Like we're doing the same thing in an opposite way. So what, what I've tried to show, and I might have done it poorly, is that God has given an outline of present truth, and that when we recognize what the truth for this time is, it inoculates us, as it were, makes it easier to recognize the foolish side things that would be a distraction. Hebrews 13 of course, you can see that to obey that verse, you do have to recognize diverse and strange doctrines. If you don't recognize them, you can't obey Hebrews 13, 9. Does that make sense, that idea? Or not? No, I was paying attention to your hands. <laughs> <laughs> and you missed what I was saying? <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. I ha I, you can ask my mom. I've talked with my hands since I was very young. I saw a baby picture of myself this week where I just, uh, yeah, so it's all right. So I distracted myself now. I don't know what I was saying either. Um, so I, what probably what we ought to do is give you a chance to escape and come back in 10 minutes if you care to. And I'm just going to continue on this process for those who come back. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.